Rewind. Your Week in Review is sponsored by the Wisconsin Realtors Association. Bringing Wisconsin communities to life with great homes, businesses, and neighborhoods. The Wisconsin Realtors Association. The voice of real estate. This program is brought to you from Wisconsinized Margaret Farrow Studio. This week on Rewind, your week in review. That's a wrap. Lawmakers conclude their work during the fall legislative session. We have you covered on the big ticket items they crossed off their list. Plus, amid heightened scrutiny, Governor Evers announces plans to ease lockdowns at two of Wisconsin's oldest prisons. And why some say the GOP war on diversity and inclusion programs could cost Wisconsin hundreds of engineers. All this and more on Rewind, your week in review for November 17th. Hi, I'm Emily Fannin. And I'm J.R. Ross. Well, lawmakers wrapped up a very busy week of session as they are now headed into recess until the next year. And they crossed off a lot of big ticket items that they wanted to get done, a lot that we talked about last week. First, let's start with the Brewers funding package. Uh, lawmakers secured enough votes as it was a little uncertain heading into the state Senate on Tuesday to pass the nearly a half a billion dollar proposal to maintain and upgrade American Family Field. They, of course, had some last minute changes to gain Democratic support. And those revisions to the proposal include adjusting the makeup of the stadium district board to give representation to Milwaukee and Milwaukee County and reducing the state's contribution, which was able to do that by gradually increasing a ticket tax on non-brewers events, which Democrats uh, say was necessary to gain their support to get this bill over the finish line. Um, the assembly quickly took it up later that day as well. Um, but there was still, you know, some lawmakers that just say, they voted no because they think this is a bad deal. Um, we'll get into that, but we're going to kind of hear a little bit of a mixed reaction from some senators uh, that I grabbed after the vote um, and how they're responding to getting this deal done. Let's take a listen. Feels good to finally get it across the finish line. Um, and, you know, we knew we'd need bipartisan votes, and the amendments got us to the area we need to be. So I think it was really good. Finally, to get it done, it'll go back to the assembly. We understand they're going to pass it this afternoon. I do believe. And the governor's on board, so it's a good day. We needed to make sure that our local governments had a voice at the table. Um, we did not waver away from that. We were clear that we wanted and needed to bring the state contribution down. Um, and we were able to do that as well. It is clear um, that my caucus stood up and delivered for the people of Wisconsin, saving good union jobs, ensuring that our local governments have the tools that they need to serve their communities best. I do believe that we needed more uh, from the brewers, and we needed uh, less from those that don't even get an opportunity to participate um, in using the Brewer Stadium, i.e. most of Milwaukee, 80% uh, of the people who go to the stadium are not from Milwaukee. What I believe is inappropriate is that the people who represent the citizens who are being asked to carry the load uh, did not have a seat at the table. Heard a lot of arguments uh, throughout the debate that lawmakers, uh, specifically some Democrats, wanted to see a deal that was more resembled like the Bucks deal. It was kind of 50-50 share there with public uh, funding along with uh, the state as well. Um, you know, it was in the end they got this done, um, and the state's contribution came down as well. So I think everyone just wanted to not be the ones mm -hmm. per se to say, "Oh, we were the ones uh, that prevented." the brewers from extending their lease here in Milwaukee. So uh, this package has changed. So the governor back in, I think, February, it was $290 million up front, state money, all state money. 
Now, there was an expectation that at some point in that process, the governor would bring in a team contribution to kind of sweeten the pot for Republicans. That was rejected right away. By this summer, it grew well north of $700 million, with Milwaukee County, the city, doing $200 million plus. Then they started getting chipped down, right? We got the original kind of revised version a while ago that uh, knocked down the city and county $135 million, took down the state a little bit. Then we had a ticket surcharge, took down the state a little bit more. And now this additional one, which took down a little more. And in the end, you know, Milwaukee County and the city got a pretty good deal financially. That was a big concern for Democrats uh, way back when. They allowed the city and county basically to pay their share with what was going to be state money. They have, both have a sales tax. Department of Revenue collects sales tax and charges an administrative fee to local governments for doing that. They're allowing to keep more of that. Actually, every county with a sales tax gets more of their sales tax in their pockets. That was a selling point. It all kind of worked toward just kind of chipping away to get to a point where the sweet spot where Devin Lemieux had about 11 votes in his pocket for Republicans. Democrats end up with eight. Last week I was hearing like half a dozen or so. Keldo Roy's, who voted against it in committee, flipped to a yes after the changes, for example. So they got just the right spot to get through. There's a big difference between this bill and the alcohol bill. Uh, we're going to talk about a little bit. With the Brewers bill, my sense was Republicans who didn't like the deal weren't upset about it getting done. They didn't want to stay in the way of this. There was not like inflamed passions um, from Republicans. Now, Steve Noss is an exception from Whitewater. He wasn't happy about a lot of stuff. But other Republicans kind of went, okay, I just don't want to be in the way of this. I'm not going to vote for it. I'm not going to throw a fit about it or be like a pain about it. The alcohol bill, though, is a much different story, much more dynamic going forward for the Senate. Right, and staying just on the Brewers for a little bit, Governor Tony Evers did say he would sign it. Um, so, you know, this means now the team is going to stay there until 2050. What happens next after that remains to be seen. Um, but that's also an argument that we heard from some Democrats, specifically Senator Chris Larson on the floor, that said, you know, someday, mm-hmm. Whoever's in this chamber one day might be asked for billions and billions of more to build a new stadium or what happens. Um, so the future is unknown for now. But for it's a good deal for those, I guess you could say, for uh, Brewers fans who didn't want them to leave. So that stadium come 25th would be more than 50 years old. How many stadiums in Major League Baseball right now are 50 years old? Wrigley Field is one of them. Completely remodeled a few years ago. Um, Boston plays in you know a Fenway Park, an old stadium. Everybody else has newer places. So what's that price tag going to be in 27 years for a new stadium, and how much will taxpayers be asked to pay for that stadium down the road? Right, because the current stadium right now is 22 years old. So, mm-hmm. All right, now you kind of teed up the next topic here is the sweeping bill that would uh, change alcohol regulations here in the state. There's kind of three provisions of the bill that we're going to highlight. Uh, the first one would impact uh, wineries. You know, they would be allowed to stay open past 9 p.m. Uh, another part of the bill would give breweries new freedoms, such as the ability to mass produce, can mix drinks, make hard seltzers, and sell beers made outside of Wisconsin. Um, and then another one would also have bars stay open past 4 a.m. during the RNC when it's in Milwaukee next year. But the big holdup, too, that I think uh, a lot of lawmakers were frustrated with and was kind of the controversial part is the wedding barn issue. Um, basically, under this bill, if you are an owner of a wedding barn and you don't have a liquor license, the bill will now require you want to get one or you can only hold six events per year. Um, but before we get into more details of the pros and cons of this and how people and lobbyists are reacting, um, the holdup, I guess, or I guess the, the 
the sticking point for some Republicans is that this was brought to the floor um, with a very secretive maneuver, you could say, by Senate Majority Leader Devin Lemahieu. He added an amendment to another bill, and Senator Hutton uh, didn't want this bill to come to the floor quite yet. It was still in his committee. That was kind of what the holdup. The Assembly already passed it a, a few months ago, and he was waiting to try to get some more tweaks to it. Uh, but Lemahieu uh, basically shot that down. Um, let's hear from Senator Hutton first and dive more into this. There are hundreds of individuals in the state that based on the vote that just took place will now have many sleepless nights wondering how they are going to survive. I thought for sure we were coming here to advocate for the little people, for the small business, for those that are just trying to make it in our economy and to make it an easier platform for them and an easier runway and less burden and less regulation. But I guess today was about more regulation, more stomping out those that are just barely eking out a living, those that use their creative entrepreneurial spirit to do something unique that actually was desired. Because that's the end result of this bill and this amendment that got attached to it. It's also worth noting how this bill was brought to the floor is something that is rarely ever done in the legislature, right, JR? Yeah, so there's policy here and procedure. Let's talk about policy for a second first. Um, this system we have in Wisconsin, three-tiered system, there's producers, there's uh, distributors and wholesalers, sailor, and basically retail, right? Everybody got something this bill. This has been the product of years of negotiations of all those big entities except for the wedding barns. They're the one that basically gets screwed mm -hmm. uh, in the entire thing. Now, that's their perspective. The coalition that put this bill together argues, look, wedding barns aren't regulated right now. There's no license, so there's no, it's a wild west to them. And the Tavern League was very adamant that they had to have some kind of regulations. So, yes, you have a no-sale permit now where if you don't have a liquor license, you get the six events, no more than one a month, which people say is going to kill some of these facilities. Or you try and get a Class B license, which is what a, a restaurant or a tavern has. The challenge is, you know, zoning issues for these wedding barns, other stuff, it could be an issue to get those licenses. So there's that piece of it. The procedure part, which plays into how this happened but also has ramifications going forward, was fascinating. So rarely, if ever, do you see bills sent to a committee sponsored by the majority leader and the Speaker of the Assembly that go nowhere. Rob Hutton, chair of the University and Revenue Committee, had a public hearing in August and has no, shown no signs of having an, uh, an exec on the bill to move it forward. Chris Capping, the Senate president, is in charge of assigning bills in that role. Capping has opposed the bill. Hutton opposed the bill. It was in a dead end. So Lemahue, and I got one this like Monday evening was going to happen, took a 150-page bill and attached it to a 25-page bill. That There was a connection there. Uh, the other bill deals with alcohol and tobacco, Department of Revenue, which is a big part of the overall big alcohol bill, but he found a way to move this around this conservative wing caucus, which could have some problems from down the road. It also, for Kappinga, there's a thing called germaneness, is, a, is an amendment germane to the main bill. The chair, the presiding officer in both houses is asked, rule on these all the time, and usually it's a minority party saying, we want to add this amendment to your bill, and the chair says, it's not germane. And then the majority party upholds that ruling. This time, it was the Senate president saying it's not germane, and the majority leader of the same party 
challenging that ruling and overturning it through a vote of the Senate. That almost never happened. I mean, I, I can't remember if it's happened before in my 24 years being here. Then two, Lemahieu did an end around of a committee chair who had blocked this bill and found a way to get around that. So the question is, what's that mean for Republicans going forward? Now, that conservative wing, the very kind of like a half dozen members, they've held up stuff before, and we talk about Rule of 17, right? Usually you want 17 votes, majority party, get something done. Lemahieu said a message to those guys, I'm not gonna let you stop big bills anymore. If it's something that I want to get done as majority leader and that most people like in this building, we're going to get it done despite you. Um, for that kind of conservative cabal, if a leader does that and gets sideways with his or her caucus, you can overturn or overthrow that person. It happened back in 2007. Gene Robson was the majority leader from uh, Beloit for Democrats. There was a budget vote. Democrats weren't happy about it in the Senate. Russ Decker from Weston challenged her. They dumped her mid-session uh, as majority leader. But with the Republican caucus, there isn't an obvious successor or challenger to Lemahieu, so he's probably secure in that position. That said, there are other things they want to do the rest of the session. Uh, there's a bill called Right of First Refusal. It's a big bill that deals with uh, transmission lines for utilities. That's one of the three big to-do things for Lemahieu this fall and into the early part of the session. It also has conservative opposition. What's that caucus going to do now with that bill come January or February if things don't heal, mm-hmm. right? We've got two months off, there we go take a breather, and kind of catch, get maybe over this, but that could have problems for, we call it Rofer, uh, down the road. Also could have challenges for other things. Oh, and by the way, politically, let's not forget the backdrop that we have new maps possibly going to the Supreme Court at some point next year. You need a caucus rolling together in the same direction to raise money and be unified on top those things to compete with new maps. If this caucus is fractured, what happens on those fronts? So there are all kinds of like what ifs right now and challenges, but right now, Lemahieu found a way. There are all kinds of, I've heard this phrase a lot this week, if Fitz were, if Fitz were still here, this wouldn't happen. I've Referring heard. to Scott Fitzgerald, the former right. leader. Maybe, but the caucus has changed. It's bigger. It's more conservative when Fitzgerald was here. And Lemahieu found a way to get these things done, uh, get these things done over objections of a, uh, a half dozen of his members. Right. I mean, like you were mentioning, there was a lot of uncertainty heading into Tuesday. A lot of people had hopes that they would get this done. But, yeah, I mean, it's almost you have to give props to Senate Majority Leader Devin Lemahieu because it also was a true test of his leadership as leader of the Senate, of if he could get these big three done, right? He wanted to get the brewers. He wanted alcohol overhaul. And he wanted something done on PFAS. Now, of course, the transmission lines, that's another issue that will take mm-hmm. up in January that leads on to our next issue. I mean, he got all big three of these ticket items done. Um, looking at at PFAS, the Senate approves legislation that would address what's called forever chemicals and drinking waters, PFAS contamination across the state, despite criticism from advocates who say it wouldn't uh, do enough to hold polluters accountable. That is on top of another bill that they passed that gave final approval to a $2 billion income tax cut that's part of an overall package that seeks to address childcare uh, costs. That's a proposal Governor Evers is expected to veto. He's also likely to veto the PFAS bill. So while we saw bipartisanship on the floor on Tuesday, JR, not all of these are going to get across the finish line and become uh, and go and become law. Yeah, the PFAS bill, there's an amendment added ahead of the vote on Tuesday, which was sought to kind of soften the provisions of the DNR to kind of address concerns from Democrats and environmentalists about the enforcement powers the agency has, about what it can do with this. It still wasn't enough. Uh, Evers, we asked his office for comment about that amendment. His spokesperson refers back to things he said before about the bill, which basically were he's not happy with it. So this is a challenge for that bill to become law. 
despite the work of Rob Coles and Eric Wimberger, both from Green Bay, both have PFAS in their backyards, arguing this is a good way forward. And Tuesday was just such a slow news day, <laughs> JR. There was also another big announcement from Governor Evers that deals with uh, lockdowns that are currently happening, well, are going to start easing, I should say, at Waupon and Green Bay prisons. On Tuesday, he announced with the Department of Corrections that he will start easing those lockdowns, which has really kept inmates confined to their cells for most of the day. And these lockdowns have been happening on for several months, um, which has been uh, going on because there's been a struggle to get correctional officers in these facilities as they've been dealing with staffing shortages. Um, this also comes as advocates and family members of inmates at both prisons have described conditions during these lockdowns as cruel with limited access to medical care, showers, recreation, and contact with loved ones. There's also a federal lawsuit right now that was filed um, less than a month ago against uh, for inmates at Waupun uh, alleging the conditions are inhumane. So that's going on. So in a sense, this was Evers' response mm -hmm. to what's been going on and kind of the criticism that he's been getting from a lot of advocates and families of inmates at these facilities. Um, beyond just easing restrictions, though, there's a lot more else in his announcement and and one specifically that deals with de possibly decommissioning one of these prisons, JR. So let's go back. Upon and Green Bay, one's from the 1850s, one the 1890s. They are not built to modern standards or efficiencies. Also, Upon has a challenge demographically. It's not in a very highly populated area. All employers in Wisconsin are having hard times finding workers. It's just the way it is. If you have an opportunity in a prison, a maximum security prison that is not a great place to work. It's an extra challenge to find workers. Right now, the vacancy rate for guards and sergeants at Waupun is more than 50%. Part of this plan is moving 220-ish inmates from Waupun to other facilities. It's a quarter of the population. It will take Waupun down to a single occupancy cell policy, essentially, which would, they argue would help with these issues, but also creates a burden for other prisons because they now have more people coming in. We are above capacity in Wisconsin with our prison systems. So what's the path forward? Well, uh, Ali Wez, the officials up there are calling for a closure of the Green Bay facility. There is an idea out there. You could close a pond in Green Bay, build a new prison that is more modern, could house everybody in those two facilities, and locate it in a bigger population area and address your issue. The problem is Governor Evers ran in 2018 a platform that included reducing prison population. We have rebounded from a dip in our population from about 18, 19,000 back to pre-COVID levels, more around 21, 22,000. How do you as Evers deliver on a promise, reduce the population, but build a new prison, right? That sends a, a very convoluted message from him if he were to do something like that. So it'd be fascinating to watch what that Wapun commission, or Wapun study shows, though we've had two studies before yeah. that have suggested it's time to move on. So that's a challenge for the governor and he has to do something because there's a constant drumbeat of what's going on how do you fix this? And there has been a bipartisan proposal in the past to close the Green Bay prison, mm -hmm. but neither Governor Ebers nor the GOP-controlled legislature was interested in that. Of course, there's a big price tag problem as well of how are you going to afford this? Yes, there's a state surplus, but almost every time this issue is brought up during budget negotiations, it seems almost to be sidelined. But it is worth highlighting during the last state budget, the current budget cycle that we're in, um, they did approve pay raises for correctional officers. So that was bumped up to $33 an hour. Evers even said in his announcement he's hoping that can start bolstering the workforce. In reality, though, I mean, that is a starting salary at some other places that you can work in retail. So mm -hmm. it's, it's finding people to attract people 
to want to work in a prison, but when the conditions are so bad and you know assaults against staff members are increasing, it's it's a tough sell. Yeah. Um, I spoke to Senator Van Wangard, who is the chairman of the Senate Judiciary and Public Safety Committee. Um, he was kind of just reviewing the plan, but his first general reaction was, I don't see how this is going to work, specifically with moving 220 inmates to other facilities. They're at Waupon now. How are you going to, where are they going to go? Like you mentioned, the overcrowding issue right now, it's happening at almost a lot, I should say not every, but mm-hmm. most correctional facilities across the state. Um, so he, his argument is the numbers don't quite add up. Ironically, when I talked to him, uh, DOC Secretary Kevin Carr was actually going to come and sit down with him to talk about other things, but of course this was on the table as well. So he's kind of looking for more solutions of, okay, this, this looks great, but how are you going to do it? And I think over the next hopefully few weeks or months we'll find out, because the, the timeline that Evers wants to do this by is March 1st. Means to be seen if we see that happen. Worth noting, the governor visited Wapon. Uh, there have been he a lot did, of calls yes. for him to do that, and mm-hmm. so he'll go see more buildings, more prisons as it, the weeks come on uh, to see the conditions there as well. All right, let's uh, go into, I guess, the latest update on the ongoing fight over uh, an engineering ba- building on UW Madison campus. Um, Assembly Speaker Robin Voss was asked about this again. In lieu of UW-Madison launching a pair of digital ads as part of a much broader campaign trying to push support for a new engineering building amid this ongoing stalemate with the GOP-led legislature. Um, Voss, when he was asked about this on Tuesday, um, he said, well, once a deal is negotiated around DEI, diversity, equity, inclusion, and other demands, he said then you know, we can address this issue of the engineering building. The Journal Sentinel had an article this week that surveyed um, all lawmakers. There was only four that got back to him about where their support is for this. So people are kind of being hush-hush about this um, and where this goes. Um, when Voss was about, asked about this as well, his kind of response is, well, yeah, UW-Madison is great, but there are other schools, universities, colleges uh, that offer engineering degrees. So there's so it doesn't all have to happen here. Let's take a listen to what he had to say. Since the year 2017, the university unilaterally has added over 1,700 positions, even though we have had steady or declining enrollment. So I think part of the challenge that we see is an, uh, an overinflated, bloated UW system, at the same time asking us for more money for a building. Uh, I think that we have to constantly remind people that even for those folks who did go to UW-Madison, there is more than one exceptional school as part of the UW system. So to think that the only place to get a great engineering degree is by attending UW-Madison is a fallacy that we don't want to also allow to become the norm. What I'm interested in watching is whether this pressure campaign by UW-Madison, these ads that were launched, if it will, if it will you know, make a difference, will it make lawmakers want to talk about it more? But it's, it appears, you know, since they're in recess right now, this could be another thing on the docket when they come back in January. And worth noting, it's not university money paying for the ads. It's yes. alumni who are paying for it. If they use state funds, I think it would really honk off Republicans. Oh, yeah. Uh, but... Uh, Robin Voss has shown no signs of relenting where he's at this thing. Unless, unless the university gives up DEI positions or gives the legislature authority over positions, he's not moving. Mm-hmm. And it was last week that uh, UW President Jay Rothman also sent his workforce proposal in a, an attempt to get back the $32 million that lawmakers took out of the, out of the budget. Uh, we haven't really seen much movement on that as well, but we did hear that they're both talking to each other, so mm-hmm. we'll see. All right, let's get to stock picks this week. Rising is Mount Pleasant because it's uh, reaping some rewards of the Microsoft deal. Yeah, so more Friday news from last week. I want to harken back to 
a big announcement that Microsoft already announced a $1 billion investment roughly in this uh, giant industrial park where Foxconn was going to be or is but isn't quite what it used, was going to be. They're adding even more to this. So now the original investment for Microsoft was going to basically take care of the debt that Mount Pleasant took on when it came to building this facility for Foxconn. Remember, Foxconn was going to have this, what do they call it, Wisconsin Valley is what Scott Walker called it. It's not become that whatsoever. But there's lots of shovel-ready areas, infrastructure there for companies to come in. Microsoft announced this spring a billion-dollar data center. Okay, covers the debt from Foxconn. Now this additional investment, Mount Pleasant says we could be actually cash rich in a few years because of what this is going to generate. It, they put aside for a while, but it could be there to help lower property taxes on the road. So a big win for Mount Pleasant when it was looking at a really dire situation financially just a couple of years ago. Right. All right, and mix this week is Eastern District vacancy. So there's a spot open in the Green Bay uh, court, federal court in Wisconsin. Five months ago, Tammy Baldwin and Ron Johnson sent two names to the White House for possible appointment to the seat. Uh, Mark Hammer, who is a judge in Brown County, and Byron Conway, who's an attorney up in Green Bay. Been radio silence since. Now, it's not that crazy to wait that long. If you go back to William Pocan, Mark Pocan's brother, mm-hmm. it took six months from when they announced the candidates to the nomination of, of William Pocan. But now we're up against an election year. And election years have interesting consequences for judicial picks in the Senate because senators of the minority party or opposite party with the White House don't like affirming people from the other party before presidential election because they could have their guy or gal pick the next person, right? Now, Wisconsin, we're kind of different. We're thinking of the Federal Nominating Commission. It is made up of equally of picks from Baldwin and Johnson to identify candidates. That process produces kind of mostly moderate people because you have to have a majority of that six-member commission to actually make it to a candidate post. The two candidates, I mean, one, like I said, one's a judge. Looking at his donation history, you know, gave 50 bucks to Shirley Abramson back in 2009. Uh, other one, the attorney, few Democratic uh, contributions, but some Republican ones too. They're not really firebrand-type looking folks. The question, though, is if Biden wants to fill these judgeships, why isn't he moving quicker on something like this has been vacant for a while? And don't forget, they tried to fill it once. William Pocan was blocked by Ron Johnson because Johnson said he's not from Green Bay, and he gave low, low cash bail in some cases. Now, Mark Pocan said, it's because Johnson is anti-gay because his brother is also gay. became the first gay judge in the Seventh District of the United States. Johnson denied that, but that's the backstory here. It's been open for a while. Why aren't you moving on this judgeship? And there's still time, yeah. but it gets a little harder to get closer to election. It's definitely a topic we've talked about yeah. on the show before. Um, all right, following this week is tobacco enforcement, specifically with vape sales. Yeah, so we're seeing an increase. The DA, Department of Health Services does you know these surveys every year, and they're seeing an increase in the sale to underage people now. The definition of underage has changed, though. Yep. It used to be 18 was the, the age. Now it's 21. But in Wisconsin, we still don't have state law that matches federal statute requiring it to be 21. Therefore, there's no local enforcement powers. It's very confusing. So if you're 18 or 19 and go into a store and s- buy something and the, they sell it to you, no, nobody's getting in trouble. Mm-hmm. And so DH is saying, look, this is a consequence of us not enforcing the federal statute or not having a state law to, to match the federal law because 
we're not enforcing this. Right, and they want to start cracking this down too because vaping became a big mm -hmm. uh, deal in schools and younger kids vaping now um, when there was that whole thing that started, I believe around 2018 um, with uh, Juul, they mm -hmm. became a big brand. Um, all right, so we'll see where it goes with that. All right, thanks so much for joining us. Just of note, we will be off next week for Turkey Day, so we'll see you the following week. Thank you so much for joining us. See you next time. I'm Emily Fannin. And I'm J.R. Ross. Take care. This program was brought to you from Wisconsin Eyes Margaret Farrow Studio. Rewind. Your Week in Review is sponsored by the Wisconsin Realtors Association. Bringing Wisconsin communities to life with great homes, businesses, and neighborhoods. The Wisconsin Realtors Association, the voice of real estate.